0: You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. For today, let's go to John 16, verse 12, and looking at verse 12 to 24. John 16, verse 12, here's Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He'll glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you'll not see me and again a little while and you'll see me and because I'm going to the father so they were saying what does he mean by a little while we do not know what he's talking about Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him so he said to them is this what you're asking yourselves what I meant by saying a little while and you'll not see me and again a little while and you'll see me truly truly I say to you you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I, see, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Well, when we're thinking about the mission of Jesus. And whenever we think about the mission of Jesus, it's good to think of it as, as a movement going forward. The mission is always being propelled forward. That's what it does. The mission of God, it it propels us outward and forward. And in fact, Jesus even uses this kind of language. He says things like, I'm sending you out into the world. He says, go and tell, go and make disciples. He says, be my witnesses. And the mission of God moves us in a direction and it's always forward. And this funneling forward is always pointed towards a a time where Jesus is... um, where he is exalted, where he is reigning. And this trajectory is always leading towards a good place, a good future reality where those who trust in Jesus will be ushered into a time of fullness of joy with no sorrow and no grief and no lament. And this good future reality is a time when Jesus will return, where he will reign over all of creation, where our hearts will rejoice forever where our enemies will be defeated, where all of creation will be put right. Everything that is wrong in today's world will be put right. And so the mission of Jesus is always pointed towards that future good reality. And understandably, Jesus' disciples have some good questions as we might as well today. Questions like, well, when will that happen? (laughs) We're waiting for that. When will that happen? And Jesus says, well, a little while, right? That's not very helpful, is it? When, when will this be? Where, where are you going that we can't follow you? Why are you going there? And, and what's going to happen in the meantime? And what are you doing in our lives today that is supposedly trage- putting us on this trajectory of, of your good plans? And Jesus doesn't really clear up these, answer, these questions that they have, does he? He doesn't really give them any objective, definitive answers in this he, he knows something that they don't know. And whenever Jesus doesn't answer questions like uh, directly, it's because often that he knows that just knowing those answers to the questions is not going to satisfy us. He knows that we need something different than that. What we're really longing for is not going to be satisfied with a, an answer. He knows that peace is not found in answers alone. And he's wanting to drive us to that reality that there's something more that we need to embrace. I mean, let me give you an example. If you have young children, does telling your children what time dinner will be, does it satisfy their hunger? (laughs) Does knowing that you will go to sleep tonight satisfy your weariness? It doesn't. Sometimes it even makes it worse. Well, I want to be there now. Now that I know that it's coming, I want to be there now. The disciples in our passage are dying to know when, what, how the things that you are saying will come to pass. When will I know? When will this joy be complete? When will this suffering end? And instead of directly answering their questions, he tells them that true joy, true satisfaction will come through a deeper embrace of a few things. It's not going to come from you just knowing the answers. It will come from deeply embracing a few things. And these are not the only things that we need in our life for faithful mission and for having joy and satisfaction. But in this passage, there are three things I think that are often overlooked in the Christian life. And these three are very simple words. They're very common words, but they have a monumental meaning into the Christian life. They are things like humility, patience, and faith. These three things that Jesus points to that are often overlooked when we are searching for answers to questions about when and what and how. Jesus points us to things like humility and patience and faith. For it's these things that will really give us true satisfaction and joy in our life. Let's look first at humility. In verse 12, Jesus says, I Still have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. Man, what a statement. How would you like to hear that from somebody? I could tell you more, but you wouldn't get it. I could tell you more, but you couldn't handle it. it sounds patronizing, doesn't it? it? even sounds a little dismissive or even condescending. I know you want to know the answers, but if I told you, you wouldn't understand. I could tell you directly, but it wouldn't help you any because you do not have the capacity to understand what I know. This is incredible. Now, you know, one of the most iconic scenes in, in the 1990s movie, movies is uh, from A Few Good Men, and you probably know where I'm going with this. I see a lot of head nods, but Tom Cruise's character, right? He's, he calls out Jack Nicholson's character, who's a colonel in the United States Marines, and Jack Nicholson is defending his actions as a colonel in the Marines, and he says it in this way. He says, I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. And then the colonel says, you want answers? Tom Cruise says, I think I'm entitled to it. You want answers? And then he says, Oh, now, what does he say again? Oh, you know what he says, right? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Now, I think the character of Jack Nicholson's, uh, you know, character of his, of his person is a little different than the character of God, but I think there's a point here that is worth making based on the authority of what he knows and the position of his authority in the Marines and what he's providing for the country. There are things going on in this world that God is doing that you and I just simply have no capacity to comprehend. And among there are things God's doing in your life. There's things happening in our circumstances. There's lament and pain and grief. There's sorrow. There's waiting. There's things that happen that we wonder, how is this in any sort of way good And God would say to us, there are things I'm doing that you could not even comprehend if I told you. And we question him and we even at times debate him. And we times say, I think I could do a better job than you. And he would say in the most loving but direct way, you couldn't even understand what I'm doing if I told you. And this drives us to be humble, This requires humility to understand that at any given moment, there are things that are just simply outside of our capacity to understand what God is doing. In some sense, you and I can and must know certain things. Now, to say there are things outside of our our capacity to understand doesn't mean that we can't know anything. There are things that we must know. There are things that we can know. There are things that we are invited into know and understand and embrace I mean, after all, Jesus immediately says, after this phrase, he says, when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. There are truths that we must listen to and know and comprehend. And then there are things that we simply cannot understand. In another sense, you and I, at any given moment, are misunderstanding what God is doing in the world. That means that everyone in this room, and at some point, you're misunderstanding the purposes of God in your life. You simply do not know what he is doing. And it doesn't mean because, this doesn't mean he's not doing doing anything in your life. It means you just can't understand the meaning of it. God is a God of revelation. He's a God of teaching. He is a God of revealing things to us. He is a God of getting his truth into us so that we know what he knows And this is always a process. You and I are in process. This life that he has given to us, he is using this life to to give us truth, to impart truth and reality into our hearts. And we do not have all the information. We have the information that we need to know for salvation, for relationship with God. And there is so much that we do not know and there's so much that we do not understand. That doesn't mean that God is not working. You and I are in process, and this should always make us humble. That there are always things beyond our comprehension. No one, no one here has ever arrived to the place of no longer needing to be taught by God. And this should make us humble. Does it make you humble to know that there's things you just do not understand about what God is doing. There are, there are questions you have that God is not telling the, you the answers to. Not because he de- loves to hold you in suspense, but because you do not have the capacity to understand. You know, let me explain. You know, one mark of, of maturity for a young boy like myself li- living up, living growing up in the wooded areas of central Ohio, the mark of maturity was... Um, how many logs you can hold um, in your arms from the chopping block and bringing wood into the furnace, right? So we actually had a chopping block where we, in the woods, we chopped wood and dad would load up your arms, right? He's like, hold out your arms. And there was, a, there was like a, this is how you do it. You go like this, right? You hold out your arms and he'd lay a log on your arms and you're like, oh, I can do more than that. And he's like, okay. And he puts another log on your arms. That's pretty good. I can do more, dad. And he lays it on and you're starting to arch your back. And I'm totally fine. I can do more. And how much more? And so it's like, okay, how much is God's understanding that is beyond our ability to endure that and to bear it? Is it just a few more logs? Is it just a little more? It's like, well, God knows a lot, but, but I know a lot too. I can handle it, God, just tell me more. I can handle what you need to tell me. And he's like, no, it's just a little bit, few more logs than you can handle. What is it? Is it just a few more? That's how we view God. We think that we can, he just knows a little bit more than we know but we're strong enough. We can handle all of his wisdom and knowledge. He says, you cannot bear it because it is not just like a few more logs. It is like the entirety of the redwood forest on your back and more. He is saying, you cannot handle it. It would crush you. If you had knowledge, the full knowledge of what God is doing in this world, it would crush you. If you had full knowledge of the sin in your own heart, it would crush you. Sometimes we pray, God, search my heart, let me know of what my sin has done. And he says, if I told you, you would not be able to understand. God, tell me what you're doing in this world and why you allow evil and why you allow this bad thing to happen and what you're doing in my life and why it's taking so long. And he says, if I told you it would crush you, you would not understand. To be guided in truth means that at any given moment, you and I live and exist with limited knowledge and understanding as to what God is doing in the world. And that should make us humble. God's, it is God's purpose to flesh out his truth in your life. And this is a process humility is being open to that process. Humility is standing before God and before others in our lives and admitting there is a lot that I don't know about what God is doing. To have a posture of humility is to, is to admit at any given moment, I could be very wrong in my perspective right now. God does not need the the perspective of hindsight. He doesn't learn. He doesn't grow. He doesn't gain an understanding. We do. Ten years ago, you probably thought you knew everything you needed to know to be a mature, well-adjusted, faithful human being. And now you look back and say, what a fool I was. I can't, I can't believe I thought I was so smart then. I have learned so much. And now you come today and you think, Now I'm there. Ten years from now, hopefully, you will look back on today and say, what a fool I was. How little I knew. To be humble is to realize that even the things that we feel certain of today are so small in our understanding of what God will show us tomorrow. And this makes us humble. If we are to engage in God's mission in this world, we, are, we need to have this posture of humility, knowing that, that we are, there are certain things that God has revealed to us and we know, we have confidence in. There's so much that we don't know. There's so much I don't know about what he's doing in your life and, and in my life and in this world. And as we see the world kind of go in a, a direction, a way of what it feels like to be good, we need to be able to say, I don't know what God is doing. I don't know what he's doing, but I know it's going in a direction to make Jesus' name great, to glorify Jesus and to give me joy. The trouble that you are going through today, God's purpose in it is for your joy and his glory. And this should make us humble, but not just humble. We know we need more than that. It should also make us patient, We need to be patient as God works out these things in his own time. Patience is another really overlooked characteristic of engaging in faithful mission. We are in such a hurry to fix the things that are broken. We are in such a hurry to fix what is wrong in this world. Jesus, when will these things come to pass? When will things be good? When will you silence the mouths of the evildoers? When will you give me the joy you've promised? And he says... In a little while. It's almost like salt on a wound, isn't it? It almost is, gosh, what a horrible answer. When is dinner? In a little while. Is there a worse answer to a question of pain and confusion than the answer in a little while? When will my suffering end? When will this pain go away? When will you make things right? In a little while. And John tells us, the author of this, John tells us it was this phrase that really confused the disciples. What does that even mean? In a little while. Jesus, can you be more specific? Can you be more specific of what you mean by in a little while? And this little phrase, in a little while, it's often used in the Bible to describe this momentary time, this interval of time of pain, confusion, lament, grief, sorrow, that we are often called to endure in this life. The Bible uses this all the time. It talks about this, this brief time in our life that we must endure, that we must get through in order to, to get to this end point of the fullness of joy with God and everyone must endure it. You see, Jesus will die and he will be buried and resurrect in three, three days time. And he refers to that period of time as a little while. And then Jesus will resurrect and he'll ascend into heaven and he will one day come back and return. And so far it has been two millennia. And that period of time is also referred to as a little while. Frustrating, isn't it? Because three days or two millennia is a little while in light of God's purposes in all of eternity and what he is doing. Our lives are just a mist. It is a vapor. It is such a brief moment of time. And It is not absurd for him to refer to our lives as a little while. And what we need to learn is patience in the midst of it. Patience in this. So much so that, see, many Christians, even in the time of Jesus' life on earth, when he told them, I will be back in a little while, they wholeheartedly believed that they would not die of old age. That they would actually see Jesus return. And that was 2,000 years ago. And it was still a little while ago. We are still thinking this two millennia later, but it doesn't always feel like a little while, does it? It feels like a long time. It feels like eternity. When we're going through pain, when we're going through suffering, it doesn't feel like a little while. You see, 30 minutes with a dear friend over coffee feels like a little while. Not long enough. But 30 minutes trapped in a car after an accident waiting for the first responders to cut you out of the car to safety feels like an eternity. But it's the same amount of time. Suffering has an expiration date. Suffering will come to an end. And in light of this, we are told to be patient. Confusion, worry, and suffering have an expiration date. As we engage in the world, we are called to patience, not frenzy. We are called to patience, not chaos. We are called to patience, not worry. Why? Because this path of grief and sorrow and struggle leads us to joy and it will happen quickly. Even when it feels like an eternity, this this pain will not last. It will not endure. We are called to be patient. You know, when I was a, a, a child, I remember praying a lot that my favorite sports team would win. I prayed a lot in my living room. I was, not just a little boy, that's actually lasted all the way up through college. (laughs) Let's be honest. I I prayed so much and and I was crushed when they lost and I was elated when they won. And I stopped praying. It's been several years since I've prayed for a sports team to win. I mean, really, I I don't pray at all for sports Um, because I realized that at any given moment, there was a point I realized at any given moment, there was a young boy, a 10-year-old boy in his living room praying that my team would lose and praying that his would win. And that led me to such despair. And I'm like, what is, what is happening here? And there's a, there's a reality going on here and Jesus mentions it. He says, at any given moment when something happens, there are going to be people that rejoice in it and there are going to be people that are grieved by it. Every situation And he says, let me give you an example. I am going to die and be killed and you will weep beyond control. And simultaneously, there will be people in the streets throwing their hats up in in celebration. This is not about winning or losing and what's happening in the world. This is not about that. He says, I want you to not engage in this game that the world is playing that puts their hope on what is happening from moment to moment in your life. Because you will weep beyond control and there will be many who will celebrate in the streets that I am dead thinking that they finally won. But that's gonna be flip-flopped. And then your, your sorrow will turn to joy and their celebrations to confusion. Do not be caught up in these moments of sorrow because it happens quickly and your sorrow for those who trust in Jesus will always lead to joy. If you long for me, if you wait for me, if you wait expectantly for me, I will come to you and come back to you and you will then be joyful. And I realize, no matter if I'm praying for my team to win, so they win this game, but they're going to lose the next And any moment that I'm celebrating, someone else is grieving. And when they are celebrating, I am grieving. But what's the point of this all? I, I should not be caught up in these momentary wins and loses, but placing my hope on something, something more eternal, something more secure, something more fixed, that my struggle will always end in joy if my hope is in Jesus. You see, we look at the struggles of the world today and we are grieved and dismayed. We are frustrated and confused. And and meanwhile, there are others in the street celebrating at our loss. And there will be times where we count a cultural moment in our world as a win for us. And there will be people that that are grieving for that same action you realize Jesus was never caught up in these moments. He was never dismayed by the cultural wins or the cultural losses. He was above all that. He realized that this is just futile and childish to live by just one cultural moment to the next because he knew all that God knew. And so he wasn't crushed by the pain of the world, And he didn't celebrate uh, irrationally when good things happened. But he was anchored in the glory of God, in the purposes of God, being fleshed out in the world. And he calls us to the same kind of patience. To be patient. Because his purposes will be fulfilled. When? In a little while. It's going to happen before you know it and it will happen in just a little while. Hear what the psalmist says in verse 37. He says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourselves, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The psalmist tells us when this will all happen. Did you catch it? In a little while. (laughs) Do not get caught up in this game of being angry when things don't go your way. Do not be caught up in the game when you lose a cultural moment. Do not be caught up when, when, when wicked people are succeeding. God is not worried by it because he and his purposes will always come true and he's working towards it and even using the wickedness and sin of the world to accomplish that. But the meek will inherit the, the land. Who are the meek? The meek, this identifies a characteristic and a personality of someone who is not swayed by the the crisis or the victory of the moment, but they are anchored in patient, calm, security, knowing that God is in control. They're not worried in their circumstances, but they're filled with abundant peace. But you know, knowing when makes us feel safe. Doesn't it? We will do anything essentially to not live in a state of not knowing. To not know, that's like the most miserable place to be. I just don't know. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what God is doing. I don't know when my sorrow will turn to joy. And we will do almost anything to prevent being in a state of not knowing. Answers, I believe that answers to life's problems in our culture today, has become like anointed kings in our world. These have become idols that we worship. What do we worship? We worship feeling certain. We worship knowing the answers. We worship having the information that sets us apart from others. These have become idols that we worship, and they give us a false sense of security. Comfort in answers, in knowledge, in knowing either more than the next person or or having the different information from the other person. We are people in a culture who need to know when, how, and what. And we have made these things to be idols in our lives. That's where my comfort comes from. But it is possible that Our unceasing need to know the answers to everything along with our unwillingness to accept the unknown sit at the root of our excessive worry. Will you look at that again and just let that sit with you for a minute? When you are worried, What's the root in that? Ultimately, isn't your worry rooted in something that you don't have the information to? Well, I just don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know when this pain will be gone. I don't know when the money will come or when the disease will be gone. I don't know when I will die or when I will live. I don't know, I don't know anything. And I hate sitting in this place of unknowing but this is the exact path that God invites us into. You cannot avoid it. You cannot avoid this path of unknowing. And Jesus is obviously calling his followers to live by a a different hope. Not a hope of knowing when or what or how or why, but a hope in knowing who the only question they don't ask in this whole passage. Who is our hope? Who is our security? And here Jesus moves into this necessity of faith, not in circumstances, but a faith anchored in him. Faith is this, is, is, that's a general enough term, isn't it? Well, what is faith? What does it mean? Jesus says this, I know that you're asking these questions, and although I have the ability to answer these questions for you, there's a greater treasure that you need to hold on to. A greater treasure than, than, than answers to the questions of what and when. And that treasure is knowing who. Who holds you? Who is, whose purposes are being fleshed out in your life? Who will come back and take you to himself? That is me. Jesus is pointing them to the greater treasure and the greater treasure is faith in Jesus. The greater treasure is described here using the metaphor of the birth of a child. Don't you see that? There is pain. There is agony. There is frustration. There is unknowing. There is longing. There's a lot of questions pregnant, <laughs> pregnant moms ask got some here today. We had some in the last service. And they're like, so you're going to mansplain this to me? What it's like? No, let me just hear what the Bible says. There's a pathway to joy holding that baby. And the only way to get there is through this little while of suffering. A little while of waiting. A little while of needing to be patient a little while of of just embracing that, that difficult season of, I don't have the answers and I don't know when. The greatest treasure here is not in knowing the answers, but in knowing who holds us. I'll, I'll spare you with the details of the birth of our third child, but it was a scene out of the, a horror movie. And Janae won an Oscar for the loudest yell. <laughs> and, uh, and here this child is represented. And, and what is the mission of this child in our passage? And this is really beautiful. The mission of this child is to put an end to that time of suffering, a time of waiting, a time of pain and sorrow and lament. The child represents the end of pain and the beginning of joy. The child is coming into the world and has a mission. And the child's mission is to end once and for all sorrow and pain and lament. And yet, and here's the part we don't like about it, sorrow, pain, and lament is the only way to get to that place of joy. Of course, medicine has helped (laughs) minimize that time of pain and sorrow and lament. And there are things, and God by his grace in a spiritual sense has has offered us tremendous provision to minimize pain, suffering, and lament in this world, but we cannot escape it completely. And the greatest treasure is not answers, but the greater treasure is Jesus himself. Joy here is personified. Joy in this passage is a person to be born into the world. Do you see this? Jesus says, I'll see you again. And when you see me, you will have joy and joy will not be taken away from you. This is amazing. He's connecting us. He says, when you see me, you'll have joy and joy won't be taken away from you. He says, when you see me, I won't be taken away from you and you will have joy when you have me. Joy is personified here. Where Jesus is, there is joy. Where Jesus is, there is joy and there is the ceasing of, of all fear and worry. You cannot separate the two from one another. Joy is coming into the world and joy is a person who is born into the world. And when Jesus was born into the world, he began this mission to take on pain, sorrow, and lament, and grief, and sin, and death itself. And he was on this mission to take it on, head on, and to defeat it once and for all, so that we would have joy forever. You see, Jesus came into the world and he was called one who was well acquainted with grief and suffering. And he was a man who took on the sins of the world. He took your sins on the cross and he faced the judgment and wrath of God on the cross for us. And as a substitute, he died for our sins in our place so that by his righteousness, we would have joy forever if God did not spare his own son from having to go through this path of the labor pains of the world in order to find joy, we will not be spared from it either. But even in the midst of that, it is okay because we have a greater treasure. We have Jesus. You may not know the answers to the why, the when, the how, or the what. But you know the who. You have the answer to the who. The who has come into the world. He's conquered sorrow and pain and death itself. And the who has sent his spirit into your hearts. And he promises to come back one day and to bring you the fullness of joy that never ends. The who is Jesus. When we have Jesus, we have everything. Do not be content with just wanting answers to questions of the world's problems. When you have the answer to who will rescue it from it all. And that's why Jesus says, which is quite harsh, honestly, to his disciples, he says, up to this point, you haven't asked me anything. Th- you haven't really asked me any good questions. <laughs> Isn't that something? They've asked him a lot of questions. They've walked with him for years and asked him countless questions. And he's like, you, haven't, you still have not asked me anything in faith. That's interesting. What does that mean? <clears throat> Surely they have, because they have yet to ask a question or to pray a prayer that was anchored in faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because these events had not yet come to pass and so they didn't understand it fully. They didn't have this full faith yet. They didn't understand what it would mean that Jesus had to come into the world, that he had to live a sinless life, that he had to die a sacrificial death, and then he had to raise from the grave and he had to ascend into heaven. These events had not taken place and so Jesus is saying, everything that you've ever asked of me, has never been in the faith that I want you to have, but, but the Spirit is coming and you will have faith because when you ask things that are anchored in the hope of my life, death, and resurrection for you, only then you'll be able to ask in faith. And when you ask like that, God will give you what you ask for because your prayers will be asked in faith, not in worry. To pray in Jesus' name or to pray in faith is praying in the way that you and I will pray when we know everything that God knows. Your questions will look very different. To have the mind of Christ, to know that your security is in him, your prayers will change dramatically because then you will start to ask in faith in the midst of all the conflict and confusion and the waywardness of the world, is your hope in the who? Is your hope actually in Jesus, in his life, death, resurrection, promise of new creation, hope? Or is your hope in the what? Is your hope in the when? Well, when this person comes to power, when this situation changes, when I finally get this or don't, or get rid of that, is your hope in the what or the when, or is it in the who? Is your hope in the good old days? We just need to get back to the what? Is your hope in the future good old days? Well, we need to start doing new things as a culture and as a world and as a church. Is your hope in creating new things? Is your hope in circumstances? Is your hope in Here's the question, what needs to change for you to have joy? And here Jesus is saying, see, you don't understand. And if I told you really everything, it would just so confuse you because you still are not living by faith. To have faith in who is well described in this next quote. And I'm I'm probably going to quote Tim Keller for the next Sunday, every Sunday until Jesus comes back. Because I miss him. (laughs) Not really, but I want to. Here's what he says. He says, if you're falling off a cliff, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Salvation is not finally based on the strength of your faith, but on the object of your faith. Real faith is trusting in the who, not the what. You see, when we are grasping on to circumstances in our world, to find joy and hope that is a very, very weak branch we are holding on to and a very, very superficial faith. But even the smallest amount of faith of saying, God, I'm struggling, but I trust in Jesus and he is my hope. We are only as secure as our greatest treasure. We are only as secure as our strongest treasure treasure. And when our treasure is the world and the circumstances of our world, that's a very, very insecure place to be. But when our treasure is Jesus and he is the object of our faith and he tells us that he will not fail and his purposes will come about, then even the smallest amount of faith will, will give us the greatest amount of joy. So he says, if you just have a mustard seed worth of faith. It's amazing what he tells us, and this is, this is so amazing what he says. He says, "This is so profound. It's, a, it's quite beautiful." He says, "Everything that God has, He gave to me, and I'll give it all to you, if you just ask in faith." Gosh, that, you can you comprehend that? Everything that God has, all the resources of heaven, all the knowledge of God. He says. He gave it to me. I love how how Jesus says that. He says, I'm his perfect son. He gave it all to me. No one gets to inherit this but me, and I will share it with all of you. You just have to trust in me. That's the object of our faith, and when we have Jesus, when we have the who, everything falls into place. The day that you and I run out of questions to ask Jesus will be the day that we stand face to face with the resurrected Christ. I love it. You know, we always think like, what's the first question I'm going to ask him when, I, when, I, when I'm with Jesus? And we're like, oh, you know, what was, the, what was the deal with COVID? You know, or what was the deal with... I promise you, when you stand face to face with Jesus, you won't have any questions. None of those things will matter. You'll see it all perfectly clear, actually. In a moment, in the glimpse of an eye, in the twinkle of, of, of eternity, you will, everything will make sense. And you will have one lasting impression in your being and it will be joy. That means that everything that is happening even now is for your joy, but you don't understand it and you don't have to put on a fake face. You don't have to pretend to be happy about it. You can grieve, you can have sorrow, you can lament. We're actually called to do those things. We're called to come and bring our prayers to God and pray in faith we're called to strive with everything in us to trust in what Jesus is doing. And we see the confidence that he has for us. He says, gosh, everything, I, everything God has, he's given to me and I'll give it to you. Don't be afraid, don't worry, be humble. We're working this out for your good and in the process. Be patient, even the suffering is very, very short and have faith because there are things happening beyond your own sight that you just need to trust in me. See, Jesus took the judgment of God for sinners. He died and was buried. He rose in triumph. And that means that all who trust in Jesus, all who trust in Jesus who died in our place, our time is very short here. The difficult things in your life will not last. The good things will never be taken away from you. And the best things are always yet to come. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at HolyCrossTucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.